Well, good morning. Hey, my name is John, and I am one of the pastors here at Lakeside. Uh, we are in the third week in a series that we are calling, I Know You Are, uh, But Who Am I? And it's a little turn of phrase on that playground slur that we used as we were growing up when people would call us nasty names and we could just shoot a return back at them. You know, they say, I know you're dumb. And you say, I know you are, but what, I, what am I? Uh, well, you're ugly. Well, I know you are, but what am I? And we are starting with a presupposition in this series. And that, this is the presupposition that in order for us to know who we are, we have to first know who God is. So that's the I know you are, but who am I? And we're asking in this series, we're asking, God, who do you say I am? Not who do other people say that I am, and and not who do I think I am, but God, what do you say in your word about the person that I am, the person that you've made me to be? Uh, Before we get started today, I want to say hello to all my friends that are next door over in the family room. Uh, Go ahead and say hello to them, too. You can give them a round of applause. The family room is another venue that we have here on campus that's meeting in the downstairs, what we call the basement uh, of the block, the building that's right over there. Uh, And that's just another environment where people are gathering and and talking about the same thing and singing and doing all the same things we are, uh, but doing it over there in a little bit of a different environment. So I don't know what you think about your identity. I don't know, when when we're talking about identity, I don't know how you grew up. I don't know if you're the kind of person that beat yourself up all the time or if you're the kind of person that thinks you're too cool for school. Uh, I think that I have kind of swung that pendulum throughout my entire life trying to ask God, God, what do you want from me? And we're going to go to the source. We are believing today uh, that God Almighty knows more about you and I than we know about ourselves. That God that we read about in Psalm 139 a couple of weeks ago where he said uh, that he has crafted us in our mother's womb, that we are fearfully and wonderfully, wonderfully made. We're believing that God and we're taking that God at his word as we dive into scripture today. And we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you want to turn there, if you want to pull it up on your phone, if you want to use the Bibles that are uh, next to you in the chairs or in a little bit, we're going to put Ephesians chapter one up on the screen if you would like to follow along that way, but we are looking at a letter that was written to a church in the town in the city of Ephesus by the person that we call the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul wasn't always the Apostle Paul. He had another name once upon a time. You know what it was? Good. Good, kids. Give yourself a round of applause. That was fantastic. Saul, do you know what he did for a living? He was a terrorist. He was a terrorist. That's what he did. He took delight in rounding up Christians and killing them. Now, sometimes we like to kind of whitewash things in Scripture. We like to sanitize them. And so we say, you know, Paul saw at one time he persecuted Christians. Yeah, he did all right. He was a terrorist. And he met God Almighty face to face, and God wrecked him and changed his life forever and changed his name from Saul to Paul. And from then on out and from now on and forever into eternity, Paul will be known as the Apostle Paul, no longer the one that persecuted and and hunted Christians, but the one who reflected glory to God Almighty. And he wrote a letter to his friends in the city of Ephesus, and they distributed that letter. It got passed to other churches in the area, and then it made it all the way around the world. And we are reading that letter today. Now, Brad uh, read a little bit of this last week, and I'm going to pick up where he left off. We're gonna, we're, it's like we're on a swing. We're going to swing back, and we're going to swing forward a little bit. This is what it says, beginning at verse 4. This is what Paul says. 
He says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to adoption, to sonship through Jesus Christ. And that's one of the things that Brad pointed out last week, which was, man, it's just so beautiful. that He, he adopted us, that God saw us, and he said, you don't have a home. You don't have a father. I'm, I, I choose you. I want you to be with me. He did this through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves, Jesus, that is. In him, and remember this part, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, According to his good pleasure, there's that phrase again, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So God is doing something, Paul says. God is doing something in our lives, wants to do something in our lives that is absolutely amazing. He wants to change us, and as he's doing this, he takes great pleasure in doing this. This has always been his plan to, to, to bring us back to him and, and, to, and to give us a name and to give us an identity, and that identity is closely tied to the person of God. We are made in his image. We are made in his likeness, and he does this through the redemption in his blood and the forgiveness of sins. This thing that he's doing, it costs something, and it costs Jesus deeply. Jesus loved you and I enough to give his life for this thing that Paul is talking about. So what is God doing? What is redemption and forgiveness. What is that all about? Do you watch uh, decorating shows or rehab shows or, you know, those shows where they, they fix up homes? Uh, there's one, I think it's called Rehab Addict. Uh, my wife loves the show. Uh, she, my wife is an addict with these shows. She watches them all the time. And I love to watch my wife watch these shows because my wife is good at what she does. She creates a wonderful home environment. She's, she's great at decor and she's great at, at creating space and making it uh, welcome and inviting. And so I love it when she watches these shows and, and I, I like watching her. And every once in a while I'll sit down and I'll watch a show with her. And one of my favorites is this rehab addict show where this woman in the Detroit area uh, takes these old houses, these old dilapidated houses, these old houses that are, are forgotten about, and these old houses that have really been uh, turned into not what they originally were. And she makes them new. She brings them back to what they should have been. She gives them a new identity. She reclaims them. And so you look at that house and you go, that's how that house was supposed to be. And these houses are full of, of this expensive material. These old, old Detroit houses are full of like gold and, and silver. And they have wood floors that are like this thick that you can sand down forever. And they have mahogany on the walls and they're gorgeous. And somewhere along the line, somebody bought these houses for real cheap a lot of the times. And they go in and they go, you know what? This floor is too much of a hassle. I don't really want to do anything with it. And so I'm going to go down to Lowe's and I'm going to get some of those sticky linoleum squares and I'm going to put it all all over this wood floor. And you're like, no, 
what are you doing to that house? And then they look and they go, that mahogany, man, that is just going to take so long to fix that stuff up. It's battered and it's bruised. And so why don't we just go down to Home Depot and we'll get some of that wood paneling and we'll, we'll just staple it up there or duct tape it or whatever we have to do. And we're going to paint it pink and that'll suffice. And you're like, no, what are you doing? And so it's so great. It is so satisfying when this woman comes in and she goes from room to room over the course of weeks because you can't turn over a house in, in, one, in one day like a lot of the do-it-yourself shows uh, kind of show it to be. And like, it takes forever and she'll go to room to room to room to room and she'll make it new. She'll restore it. And as she goes into this room, she makes it beautiful. She reclaims it. She redeems it. You look at it and you go, that's that house's identity. That's how it's supposed to be. And it's so satisfying. And that is very much like what God wants to do with our lives. He wants to restore our identity. So identity is a super complicated word. Uh, It gets weird for us because identity is not only the things that we think about ourselves, Identity is the thing that we think that other people think about us. And that all gets into this big, twisted mess. And we're pretty screwed up. Like, we forgot who we are. And so we have to go to the Bible and we have to ask God these questions. Uh, We have a peculiar brand. Have you heard the phrase, Imago Dei? Imago Dei is a Latin phrase. It means image of God. And I, I, I love this, the Imago Dei. Anytime you read in the Bible about the image of God being stamped on us, think about it like this. Uh, in temples of old, when, uh, when deities were worshipped that nobody should have been worshipping, they used to carve these tiny little idols. They would make wood idols or they would make gold idols. And these idols were supposed to be a likeness of the deity that they were worshipping in these temples. God uses the same kind of imagery and language to describe how he has made you and I. Now, people are not supposed to bow down to us. It's not that kind of thing. We're not those kind of idols. Uh, we worship ourselves just fine, right? We don't need anybody doing that. Like, uh, but no, but you know what? People are supposed to look at you and I and see us as tiny, quote, unquote, idols. Idols that reflect the image of God. Idols that point the direction to God, the creator, the God almighty, Jesus Christ. We're we're supposed to, people are supposed to look at us and see him. We are his tiny phantoms. We are his tiny shadows. We are the tiny ripples and aftershocks of the creator. And people are supposed to look at us and they are supposed to see God. Uh, But we keep messing up the branding. God put a brand on us, a very peculiar brand And we keep messing it up. And we keep distorting it. I love branding. I love uh, working with branding. I love logos. And I love talking about things like consistency across brands. And I work with our communications department here. Uh, One of the things that I do, and and we're always looking for consistency with, you know, uh, with fonts and and colors. And and we're trying to make things beautiful all the time with, with like the website. We want to make it more accessible. And we're revamping those things all the time. And branding is a big deal. Uh, My, uh, growing up, I don't know that my family always understood branding as much as I did uh, because I remember sometimes I would ask for gifts like a pair of Nikes. Like when I was a kid, I, I really wanted a pair of Nikes. And then it would become Christmas time and I would open up the box and I didn't have a pair of Nikes. I had a pair of Nukies. 
or, or whatever the case was, you know? And I'd be like, this is not what I asked. And, and mom and dad would be like, well, the other thing was too expensive. And I'd be like, I know because it's Nikes and that's what I asked for. And they would say, well, well this is just as good. You don't have to be like all the other kids. You don't have to dress like them. That's not who you are. And now, now I know that as a 47-year-old grown man. Now I know that I can dress like this and it's okay. Nobody has to, you know, put their mark or their brand on me. But my grandma was always the brand rescuer. She was always the one that said, let me take care of this. And grandma would just lavish the spoils on this boy and so I would open things and finally I get my pair of Nikes and like when when the brand is not right we know it and, and we don't like it and when it's right we we like it a lot if you've ever ordered anything from Apple and it comes in, in the in the package you know the, the, the package is glorious you you open it and there's that thing in there and it's, and it's shiny and then you take your iPhone maybe out of the package and you set it aside and you just look at the package for a while because it's amazing and you save it and you say, I'm going to put something in this box because this box right here should be used for something amazing. And so I could have a whole room full and have had in the past of boxes that I've collected from things just because of the packaging is so amazing. And my wife says, you have to get rid of all of this junk. Why are you saving these boxes? I understand branding and I love good branding. Branding. We love good branding, but we are brand tarnishers. God has stamped a specific brand on us, and you and I have been messing up that brand ever since our great ancestors hopped on that eastbound train and hightailed it out of Eden with baskets of fruit under their arms. We have been tarnishing the brand. We know when the brand isn't right. Everybody around us knows when the brand is not right. God wants to do something with the brand. Every time we look in the mirror and we're disgusted by what we see, we tarnish the brand. Every time we call ourselves a name, we tarnish the brand. Every time we break relationship with somebody, we tarnish the brand. Every time we call someone a name, we tarnish the brand. Every time we point our fingers in somebody's face and we accuse them of something, not with their best interest at heart, but we want to make them feel small. Every time we do that, we tarnish the brand. God has made us very specific to do something for him that only we can do. It's a very peculiar brand. But it's more than just personal brand. So when I grew up, uh, the phrase, uh, Jesus as your personal savior was a very popular phrase. Uh, we were to invite Jesus into our hearts as our personal savior. This is, this is the wording that I heard growing up. Now, I understand that because my relationship uh, with God is, is personal in, in many ways in that I know that if I were the last person on earth that he would, he would go to the end for me. And I know that when he was giving his life on the cross that I was on his mind it's, it's personal in that way, but it's not personal. The brand is not personal in the way that it is, uh, it is only about us. There is no such thing as being uh, a, a Lone Ranger kind of a Jesus follower. It, it, there's no such thing. If you read the Bible, you will not find it anywhere. So if you ever talk to somebody or you are the type of person that says religion is a very personal thing for me and I really don't like to talk about it, good luck. Because that's, it's a losing game. 
We have a peculiar brand, but we are also branded into community with one another. And all throughout the Bible, God says that he designed us to be in community with one another. So you have, each one of you has the Imago Dei stamped on you. But we, as the people of God, have the Imago Dei stamped on us as the bride of Christ, as his people. So it's not just about us. Our identity is not only here, it's here. So we read that letter and two things popped out, uh, redemption and forgiveness. They're, they're, two, they're opposite sides of the same coin. And this, I'm, I'm going to give us some words to think about when we think about redemption. Uh, God himself came down from heaven, puts on a skin suit, decides to live among you and I. Identify with us. He came to satisfy, to exhaust, to disarm, to nullify to strip the power from sin in our lives. He came to change all of that. We are slaves to sin, the Bible says. Before we know Jesus, we're slaves. And he came and paid a price to free us from being slaves and make something new of us, make us whole, start to fix us, start to put things back together. Forgiveness is this, we owe a debt. We are in debt, and we can't pay it. And God says, I'm going to take care of this for you. My grandma freed me of debt when I was a kid. Um, I owed her about 3500 bucks for a car that I purchased, uh, and I, I owed it to her. And I went to her house one day, and I'll never forget when she gave me a card, and I opened it up, and she said, uh, you don't owe me any more money. I want to forgive you of this. And I remember crying because as a teenage kid, uh, $3,500 is a bajillion dollars. <laughs> and that's a good feeling. My son is in debt right now uh, because of student loans. And, uh, you know, he doesn't think school helped him much anyway, which only makes the uh, medicine go down that much harder um, but I got a, a letter in the mail uh, a few days ago, and I opened it on accident. I thought it was for me. It was for him, and it was from Sally May. And I, I read uh, that his next payment was due, and I thought, oh, there must be some mistake here on his payment. I'm going to give him a call and tell him I accidentally opened up his mail. And I called him. I said, hey, buddy, sorry, I opened up your mail, and, but I think there's a mistake, man. You got a call. It says you owe X amount of dollars this upcoming payment. And he said, no, Dad, that's what I pay every single month. So my son goes to, to work as, uh, you know, he, he's, he's barely got his big boy pants on and he goes to work and he works super hard and he's trying to make things right and he's engaged, he's looking forward to marriage and, and, and he starts paying his bills and, and he puts gas in his car and he buys macaroni and cheese or whatever he needs to survive on and then, and then he's got this big old bill and there's too much month at the end of the money. And uh, he says, Dad, no. Now, as a father, I would love for nothing more than to write a big fat check and pay off that, that debt. I can't do it, but I want to do it because that's what fathers do. <laughs> that's what they long to do. Our father does that. Our heavenly father does that. 
And then he begins to shape us and mold us and to restore us. And, and much like that house, to go into all of those corners, those nooks and crannies and those rooms that we have hidden, those rooms that we have boards over the windows and, and, and boarded up doors and those, those rooms where uh, we go and we spend time and we draw the blinds and we don't want anybody to know what happens in those rooms. He goes in there and he starts to change things and he starts to redeem and he starts to make things new and he starts to set things right and he starts to make us whole. This is what he does. We love redemption stories. We love redemption stories, right? They're our favorite stories. Our, our TV shows, our, our movies, our, our books. Did, did anybody watch Mad Men? You can, you can admit that you watched Mad Men. Do not tell me that I am the only person that watched Mad Men in here. You don't have, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I see those hands. I see those hands. Okay, Don Draper. You want him to be redeemed because, oh my goodness, the man blows it all the time. And, and we love this story because we see ourselves a little bit in these characters like, like Don Draper and we want him to win. We want to get to the end of the story and we want him to be able to talk to his daughter. And we want him to be able to go to his first wife and say, I'm sorry I blew it there and there and there and there and there and there and there. We want at the end of that story for it to wrap up and for him to be restored and redeemed. Did you watch Breaking Bad? How about that TV show? Okay. All right. Walter White. Ah! Dude, what are you doing? Downward spiral for whatever, five, six seasons, whatever it is. We just watch this guy go down this funnel of just chaos and making bad decision after bad decision. But in the end... Because he had such a hard luck story starting out in the end we want it to be right. Oh, please, Walter White, just make it. Be able to go back and tell your son you were wrong. Be able to go to your wife and say, I blew it. Be able to go to all those people and talk to them and say, I'm sorry, I ruined your lives. We want him to be redeemed. We want Katniss to walk into the Capitol and take care of everything. These are the stories that we love. We love redemption. And here's the thing about beautiful redemption. And it is beautiful. The beauty of redemption is only recognized against the ugliness of rebellion. Look, when we're talking about identity here today, we're not talking about an I'm okay, you're okay kind of a thing. We're not talking about God as the cosmic Zig Ziglar who wants to make us feel good about ourselves. We're not, we're not summoning the mighty Oprah and asking what we have to feel about ourselves. I mean, I'm sure she's a nice lady and all, but no, that's not what this is about. It's not all smiles and chuckles. We are not okay. We need help. We're desperate. One of the first times in my life I think I, I heard the word redemption is when it was stamped on the side of an aluminum can. California redemption value, right? right. Growing up, and I used to collect cans when I was a kid uh, because it was a good way to make easy money. And uh, my dad drank a lot of beer at that time, so that was good. Uh, uh, um, Actually, that wasn't good. That's not what I'm saying. Don't, don't take my words out of context, please. That was not good. I'm glad that is not the case anymore. Uh, but I used to save these things 
And, uh, and I, I realized something. These cans, we used to crush them, and they would weigh them and then give us money for them at that time. So I thought as a kid, you know what? If I just take a piece of gravel and every once in a while I put it into the bottom of this can and I crush it, that I could increase the California redemption value and I could turn these things in. I know, right? That is awful. Look at you looking at me right now, shaking your heads in disgust. You know what? You and I are putting gravel in the bottom of cans every single day. We are trying to pull the wool over God's eyes. We are trying to pull the wool over our own eyes. God wants to do something with that mess. One of the greatest stories of redemption for me is found in Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm not going to read it all. Uh, It's a pretty graphic, graphic passage of Scripture. And it requires uh, probably a couple of weeks warning of a PG-13 kind of a variety. In this passage, we learn about the people of Israel long ago. People that we are deeply connected to, by the way. Uh, Even if you are not Jewish and you are a Jesus follower, you are deeply connected to the Jewish People. The Bible says that we are grafted in, we are grafted in branches into the promises that he made to the Jewish people long ago. He promised a savior, a Messiah would come. That Messiah we believe is Jesus. Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah, but he also invited us in to take advantage of all of the promises that he made to them. So Jew and non-Jew alike now get to have a relationship with Jesus, and we all need him as our Messiah. So we are deeply, deeply connected to the Jewish people and to that story of the people of God early on. We learn a lot from those stories. We learn about ourselves, and we learn about God as we read those stories. Uh, My friend the other day on Facebook saw that I posted something about Lakeside, and he said, Lakeside sounds like a great place. I would love uh, to come visit sometime, but he's Jewish. And he said, "Uh, do they allow Jewish boys there? And I said, of course they do. Man, my favorite savior is a Jew. Of course. You're welcome anytime. Um, We are deeply connected to them. So here they are in this story in Ezekiel 16. The Bible says that they were like a baby lying in a field. And go with me on this. This baby is just born and discarded in a field and covered in its own blood and yucky grossness and attached to its afterbirth still. Like it's laying there discarded and God comes up and he sees this baby and he says, that's my baby. That's my child. And he takes this baby girl and he wipes her off, cleans her up, nurtures her, and she starts to grow up. And she grows into a beautiful woman. And the Bible describes this in detail. Into a beautiful woman. And God puts a dress on her, the best dress he can find. And he puts earrings in her ears, it says. And it says he puts a nose ring in her. And he gets her all pretty. And he makes her a princess. And you know what the princess does? 
She turns herself into a prostitute. And anybody who comes by with the right price or just for the cheap thrill gets to take advantage of her. And it breaks God's heart. I'm a father of daughters. I'm a grandfather of baby girls. This story wrecks me. But you know what? You and I, men, women, children, we're that baby. We're the baby. And God will go to any length to restore us to that princess, to that beautiful bride. The satisfaction of redemption, the end result, can only be recognized in the context of broken relationship. Here's the other thing about redemption. The bride, the princess, baby girl, keeps breaking relationships with God, with others, with herself, with the world. And this is what the Bible calls sin. Honestly, it's one of the best definitions for sin I have ever heard. Not just doing bad things. We get that. It's breaking relationship. Anytime you or I make a choice to break relationship with God, with the world, with others, with ourself, that is sin. Anytime anything has the potential to break relationship, it sets us on a course for sin. We are broken and splintered and shattered in so many different ways in our relationships because of choices we make, and that is sin. And in a strange twist, even, even the way when we look at ourselves, if we look at ourselves and we break relationship with ourselves, we call God a liar and we point the finger and we say, I'm not worth anything. I, I feel discarded. I don't feel like I should live anymore. If you ever get to that place in a very strange way, that itself is sin because we're calling God a liar. And he says, don't you know how I look at you? Don't you know that you're my kid? Don't you know that I want to make things right with you? The end game of redemption is wholeness. God wants to put you and I back together. We are all two bad decisions away from ruining our lives. Just a couple. Just that, that little decision that leads to that other decision and then boom, exploded. We're that close. We're sick. We need a healer. We need redemption. If we're broken in one part of our lives, our whole entire soul is ill. God didn't make you and I as, as a package that he took this thing called a soul and said, well, I'm going to put a bunch of things into this package and then I'm going to put this thing called soul. No, our entire being is our soul. 
our physicality, the way that we think, our mind, emotions, will, intellect, the way that we relate with one another. That is all of our soul. And if one part of our soul is sick, our entire soul is sick. This is why it is so strange, and, and you've heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. It's a, it's a hot button for me right now. This is why it is so strange for us to think in terms of our regular life versus our spiritual life. No, that's not how it works. We can't have everything screwed up out there and then work over here on a spiritual life and say, oh, I'm doing pretty good. No, if our marriage is broken, our souls are broken. Everything is our spiritual life. And our soul, God wants to put it back together. We cannot simultaneously be starving and well-fed. So God, in the end game, he wants to redeem and make things whole. And this is why in Paul's letter, he said, at the end of it, he said, he wants to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Everything. He wants to redeem music and movies and pop culture and, and animals and the environment and, and America and the, and the dirty commies and every militant group and, and, and terrorists and Republicans and, and, and Democrats and straight people and homosexuals. He wants to redeem everything. He wants to make everyone whole and put back to his image so that when people see us, they see an accurate reflection of him. Here's the other thing. The freedom of redemption can only be recognized in surrender. I mean, not only one big surrender, but tiny surrender after tiny surrender. Every single day, we are surrendering things. We are laying things down, and we are asking God to change us. It's not just about doing less bad. That's only part of it. Redemption is about changing the way we think and the way we see the world, and, and, and it's, about, it's about correcting the distortions in our life. We have so many distortions in our life, and if the enemy can get us to buy into any of those distortions, then he wins with anything. That's, that's what he wants to do. He tells just enough of a lie to us to get us to buy into it and get us off track. So when it comes to things like money, if we're on this side, we say, Oh, uh, money is, is uh, the root of all evil, and that's why I am going to hang on to it, and I am not going to share it with anybody, and I'm going to be a miser and keep your filthy, grubby hands off my stash. This is my money. You can't have anything, and uh, that's wrong. That's a distortion of what God wants to do with our money. Now, if it's over here, and we're like, partay, Let's all go to Vegas and just blow it, money here, money there. We're just throwing money everywhere, just going, woo, money. Who needs money? Everybody needs money, and I don't care where I spend it. That's bad. That's a distortion. No, God wants to, wants to redeem our wallets. He wants to say, look, at every good and perfect gift is from me, and I want you to be a steward of what I've given you, and I want you to spend it wisely, and I want you to take care of my people, and I want you to feed the hungry, and I want you to love your family and protect and provide for them, and I want you to, to help other people who, who can't do that. He wants to redeem it. Things like sex. 
If the, if the, if the enemy can get us to buy a distortion, he wins. Over here, uh, you know, puritanical, uh, sex is bad. Sex should have no uh, pleasure or enjoyment. Sex is for procreation only. That's a total lie. Have sex anytime you want. Have sex with anybody you want. It doesn't matter. Sex is good. Sex all the time. Yeehaw. That is bad. That is a distortion. That is evil. God wants to redeem our mind and our pants. God wants to make things right. And he says, you're, you're my temple. You're my likeness. I, I live inside of you. You can take a trip to Vegas, but it's like kidnapping Jesus and putting him in the trunk. Do you understand what I'm saying? The, yeah, amen is right. Yes. He wants to redeem. He wants to make it whole. That's what he does. 2 Corinthians 5.17, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, says uh, the new creation has come. It says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. When it comes to our identity, if we're over here, woe is me. I'm I'm a lowly worm. I don't deserve to to live. I'm, I'm worthless. That is a distortion, and it is a lie. Over here, if we're too cool for school, I'm superhuman, like nothing can touch me. I'm bad, bad Leroy Brown, whatever it is. You know, I'm Captain Awesome. That is a distortion. God says, you have been made in my image and likeness. You are my kid. You are my child. One of the best stories I've ever heard about redemption and identity, I was told by a friend of mine named David Needham. He's written a few books, and, and every time the guy told a story, he could, he could make me cry with the story. He told me uh, that when he was a kid, he was a farmer. He worked on uh, a farm in Southern California, and they used to grow golden, delicious apples. And he said they would take the, the tree trunks from crabapple trees these discarded, gnarly, ugly trees, they would take these trunks and they would graft onto these trees the branches of golden, delicious apples. And then they would nurture them. They'd wrap them. They'd water them. They'd take care of them. And, the, and then they would grow into a beautiful, golden, delicious apple tree. And he said, never once did anybody go pick the fruit off of that tree and say, man, this is a great golden, delicious apple. But let's be honest. It's a crab apple. Let's be honest. We know what it really is. No. Pick that fruit and you say, it's a new creation. God has done something new with us. God is doing something new with us. We're not crab apples. We're, we're his golden delicious. We're his baby girls. We're his princess. We're his bride. We're his aftershocks and ripples. We are the ones who point the way to him. God, we, we want to understand this so badly, so deeply. Uh, we're broken and we're splintered and we desperately need you. We recognize you as the only one who can do these things in our life, the only one who can set us right. We want to be ones that reflect glory and honor to you, God. 
We want to surrender over and over again. For your name's sake, for the kingdom's sake, Lord, please continue to work in us and carve out of us the things that should not be there and remind us of who we are. You're a father that defends us, God. You stand in the gap and you say, don't you say those things about my kid. And we are appreciative. We love you and we worship you because of that. We're yours. We surrender. Amen.